Hey man, what are you really into, huh? <laughs> Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this episode, we're winding our timelines back to the very first social media experiment that seems to have gone a lot better than the current one, CDVs, cabinet cards, and the mania they kicked off. We'll also be talking to Bay Area portrait photographer and everybody's best friend, Han Fawn. There's the answering machine, scene reviews, Tiffin Sinclair, and how to find meaning in your shitty work, or at least how we did. First, Vanya. Yes? How the hell are you doing? Doing pretty good. Just getting through the weeks, getting through, I guess, the winter. We we finally had some kind of weather recently, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> so uh, not, not just sunny. No, not just sunny, so that's okay. nice. Uh, I mentioned that I wanted to work on my portraits indoors with lights. And guess what, you guys? I got lights and I'm doing it. Uh, Not exactly (laughs) the way that I want to, but I'm working on it. Uh, So yeah, stay tuned with that. I'm thinking I'm going to paint my own canvas like background. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, Probably could just buy it, but why do that? Because I want to lay out in my front yard and get messy with paint, of course. Finger painting? Well, just like laying out a big piece of canvas and then just like getting crazy with the, you know, just trying to get some texture and some lightness and darkness. So it'll be fun. I did a little bit of shooting today. Uh, Haven't been in the ocean very much, so it was much needed. I went for it, forced myself and got out and was much happier. So yeah, (laughs) that's good. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing pretty well, actually. It's been... A good week, I think. I think it has. Last weekend, I had uh, an okay photo trip. I did a day, and I took along a bunch of cameras that I don't really shoot often. And I took along one of those like 120 reducing backs for a Graflock back for a Graflex. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't like those, but I thought, well, I've got this really cool lens on it. I, I should try it. You know, and I tried it, and I didn't like shooting it. Hated shooting it. And I shot with the little, the what, we never came up with a name for it, but that little RB uh, box Graflex thing, the the RB23, was it model or series B or D mm-hmm. or two? I don't know. That one. I can't see through it. My, my eyesight is so bad in one direction and too good with glasses. So I don't know. It's not working out for me. Mm. But when I got home, the photos I got from it were were some of the best I've taken all year, actually. Ha ha, in your face. It happens that way sometimes. I, I really, I'm, I'm digging it. So happy about it. But I guess the, the big news is the expired zine. Yeah. And I mentioned it, we mentioned it a lot last episode, so I won't go on about it. But it is available now. I, I've, I've sold, it's sold okay. I'm, I'm happy with what it's doing. I'm happy with the zine. It's a good start to hopefully a long series. Uh, thanks to everybody who's bought it so far. But actually, the the crown jewel of this week, I guess technically last week, but for me this week, because I'm just getting around to playing it, is the new Duran Duran album. What do you think? It's um, it's okay. 
There's a lot of songs that sound the same. Oh, no. Yeah, there's a couple of good ones. And there's a lot that are okay. I see. Yeah, but that's all right. <laughs> that's okay, right? No. <laughs> no. It's all right, I guess. Each episode, we put on our house slippers and cozy cardigans, and for some reason, check our answering machine. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. And, Vanya, what weird-ass question have we come up with this time? How has anxiety or mood affected your photography? Seems like a fitting question. It does. I thought we were going to get nothing from this, but we got the opposite of nothing. We got something. Let's push the button. I'm sorry, but the office is closed for lunch. If you'll leave a message, the person you are trying to reach will return your call shortly. Thank you for calling. Hello, this is Alan being Alan on Instagram. Uh, great question this week. Um, I don't think that my mood affects my photography. I think my photography affects my mood. It's more like when I, uh, whatever mood I might be in or whatever anxiety I might be feeling, uh, when I start shooting... I can get out of myself and um, I start thinking about what I'm looking at and um, my problems, my anxiety, my mood, you know, it just sort of seems to fade away. And when the whole experience is done, I feel better. So um, that's my answer. It's a very good answer. Yeah, it's flipping it around a little bit. You know, how does anxiety affect your mood? Well, photography affects anxiety. It can calm you down. It can... I guess, well, as we'll find out with some of these, it, it can kind of um, maybe make you a little more anxious depending on the situation. Possibly, but I like that he makes it a positive experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, until recently, pretty much my mood was just pure depression um, because of various events that kind of coalesced at the same time. Um, so... Otherwise, anxiety, um, I'm still a bit of a shy person, so if I want to take street portraits or see a person, I want to take their photo. Unless I'm feeling particularly brave, I pretty much just like, nope, 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 not going to bother them today. Uh, but, yeah, so, yeah, my, my anxiety and various feelings definitely affect my photography, whether I think about it consciously or unconsciously. I don't take pictures of people for, I guess, a variety of reasons, and... I, a lot of times I will say that I just don't like how they are in my photos or I like my photos without them. But really when it comes down to it, those things are true. But for me, a lot of it is anxiety. I have a really hard time going up to somebody and asking them to take their picture, even people I'm talking to. Like if I'll be out shooting and, and someone will strike up a conversation with me, there's nothing at all socially awkward about asking them, hey, we're talking for a little bit, can I take your picture? Nothing at all. People do that to me, you know, I don't see a lot of people very often, but people do that to me when I see them. Yeah. What was the guy um, that you met in Seattle during your winter project? He like gave you his card. He needed a photographer. Yeah. That yeah, was a guy who owned who owned gift shop. Gift shop. Yeah. There's, there's a store in the International District with a sign over that says gift shop. And I think it's like a cafe now, but it's still gift shop. Nice. And yeah, I never, um, well, and I, I, I didn't ask for his photo, but I did send him some of mine. Hi, Eric and Vanya, this is Hannah Grace. I feel like that question is made for me. I am 
proud to say I'm mentally ill and cannot chill. And although I try not to let my anxiety or mood impact my ability to go out and photograph, sometimes it is harder to get out of the house and sometimes the images I make just suck. So yeah, it affects it, but I try really hard to push myself through it regardless. All right, thanks, talk to you soon, bye. I think I'm more with Hannah on that. Like I want to be more like Alan and use photography to help me with my mood, but that doesn't always happen. Do you find that you do get like stuck indoors like Hannah? Oh my God, yeah. So I photographed today and the last time I photographed outside was, I don't even know, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a couple weeks ago, honestly. Yeah, it's it's been kind of, I I get into these moods and I just stay home and kind of do my own thing, which has been great because I have the lighting and the studio situation happening in my living room, so I don't even have to go anywhere. But I do end up going absolutely crazy and need to get out of the house. And then as soon as I do, I'm like, oh my God, I feel so much better. But trying to get my stubborn ass out of the house or change my mood completely is extremely difficult. This is a really interesting question because for me at least, photography and anxiety are completely intertwined. So my marriage broke up a couple of years ago and I was adrift in that way most people are, right? I was depressed and having anxiety attacks at work. So it was just not a great time all around. But that was the time whenever I got really into photography and just having something else to focus on just really made me less miserable. And I'm not trying to say something like, I started shooting foam and pan and my life turned around and it healed me, y'all, because it didn't. I mean, nothing really beyond time passing and just moving on in your life could do that for you. But if you need to make a couple of years pass to get your shit figured out, I mean, getting really into old cameras is a good way to make that happen. Plus, I guess there's the bonus of, you know, the more time that goes by, the better I feel, the better I shoot. So there's that. And there's also the double bonus of meeting a lot of cool people that are into this hobby. So that's been really neat. In any case, this has been Jesse over at Haunted Film Co. Thanks for listening to me. Uh, congratulations. We always say congratulations when people get married, and we should. But also when they get divorced. Congratulations. Because you've moved on to a better part of your life. It may suck. It does suck going through it. Absolutely sucks. But once you come out the other end, you understand like, well, that had to happen. That's that it couldn't, it wasn't a tenable relationship for it. Well, it takes two to make a good relationship. And if one of them isn't into it, then it's not a good relationship. It also takes two to tango as well. Oh, thank you. You don't tango by yourself? No, I don't. I've tried. Just keep tripping. (laughs) <laughs> it's weird. You think you would trip last. No, I just like fall. I like I fall backwards and no one picks me up and no one catches me. Wait, you're trying to dip yourself. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, no, no. You, That's the part. You where... got a lead. <laughs> oh, yeah. I I like that. He was like, Fomapan will not help you. But I, when I, he was saying that, I was like, yeah, but it gives you enough time to figure it out. You can like literally shoot it so many different ways. Like, I was like, how long would it take me to get over a breakup? Probably years, if not decades. So yeah, maybe figuring out a different emulsion would like, would be a a good idea to keep myself busy. Hi, Vanya and Eric. Matt's at Moonraker 32 here. So my mental state definitely has had effect on my photography. The past year and a half has been a tough one for me for many different reasons. I've had a hard time motivating myself to shoot much less do anything with my photos. I know for others they've had really excelled their creativity during this time, but I just felt stagnant. I want to thank y'all for doing the podcast. It has been a bright spot 
and something that always puts a smile on my face, especially during what has been a pretty difficult time for me. It's always weird to hear that. <laughs> I love it. It makes me like feel happy because oh, I feel the same way about the podcast, honestly. I don't even know how I would... I mean, I would definitely be just as crazy, but... <laughs> You know, I'm not ripping off my clothes and running into the middle of the street, so that's good. <laughs> For everybody, I don't, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I think, I think we put a lot of work into this podcast, and it is a lot. Of, we've been having, you know, issues here and there. It's a lot of work. It's hard. It's emotionally and like psychically taxing for both of us. And so when, when someone says, not just like, hey, I like your podcast, but like that it means something to them, makes them smile. Like that's, I don't know. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get all like fucking sappy here, but what I do listen to these. You, Vanya doesn't, but I listen to these first and she likes to go into them fresh. I like to know what I'm getting myself into. And one of the reasons I, I like to do that is because when I listen to Matt's, I got a little, I got a little weepy. Um, it's been a hard day, hard couple of days. And to hear that, uh, somebody appreciates something that we're doing, it means a lot. And I don't, I don't know how to convey like how much that means, but it really, really means a lot. Hey, Eric and Vanya, this is Jeff at Dirty Grain Photos. You guys are speaking to me this week with this question. I mean, I will do candid street like landscapes, anything without people or interacting with people all day long. But the minute I have to like direct people or have like one-on-one -on -one and tell people what to do and like have an actual photo shoot, my anxiety goes berserk. I mean, I've been trying to get out of my comfort zone and push myself to do it more often, but I haven't quite gotten comfortable with it yet. Anyway, that's my anxiety story. Catch you guys later. I relate to this a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure if I, we have the same type of anxiety. But I do notice when I get into those moods, I seem to rush things. And I feel like I'm wasting their time and I need to kind of hurry the process up instead of probably slowing it down and kind of thinking things over and making less mistakes because you're thinking things over. <laughs> so I've noticed myself trying my best to, they understand what's happening. We're taking pictures. It's going to take some time to get comfortable, to get into the mood, to find the right settings, whatever it is. It, you know, it, it, it's, it takes time and give yourself some time. Take a deep breath, you know, get a cup of coffee, have a conversation with the person see what they want, tell them what you want, and and then go from there. I can't imagine doing it, which is one of the, again, for anxiety, I can't imagine like doing it at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was just invited to a, a, like a, like a, a gallery opening in a couple of weeks. And my first thought was like, oh yeah, that's gonna be so cool. And immediately was like, fuck, I gotta, I gotta see people. I gotta talk to people. And I haven't really done that to any great extent during the pandemic. So this will be like my, my first, the first time I've, I've gone into like a, like a regular downtown kind of place. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't really go to restaurants. I haven't been to a restaurant in a long time. And so I've, I've 
have it really easy. I haven't had to deal with, I work with nobody really at work. So dealing with people isn't something that I have to, to deal with. And mm-hmm. so not even just like the idea of directing people, but just like interacting with people. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I was immediately anxious and this is a photography gallery. So, I mean, hopefully that will break me out of it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And also when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go. Downtown? <laughs> okay, moving on. I really like this question because I think that pattern recognition is really important to how we deal with anxiety. And some people go overboard with it and come up with crazy conspiracy theories. And some people go overboard with it and make great, great photography or some other kind of art. And for me, personally, I've been trying to finish my degree for the last 10 years now. And if I'm not at least doing some kind of art, writing, photography, I keep having the same dreams of being late to class and having no idea what's on the test and all of this. And as long as I'm behind the camera or doing something creative, I feel fulfilled. Of course, still working on the overall project, but it's been part of the long road back. And something about doing art relieves a deeper anxiety. You think there's something to that? Like, if you're conspiracy-minded, you can either go be a conspiracy theorist and, like, doubt the moon landing, and or you can be an artist. Are those your two choices? Possibly. So... (laughs) If art would have been like pushed more in schools in America, do you think we'd have less conspiracy theories? That would be great. I, would... um, I mean, maybe it's just like creative thinking, creative mind. Maybe. Because you, you kind of have to like make th- things make sense. Yeah. And then when you line it up and it makes sense, you're just like, what? Oh you know, my like God. But what I hear from him is balance. Balancing the things you have to do with the things you want to do. Because- of course we don't want to do the things that we don't want to do. Of course he wants to finish school, but you got to like fill up your extra like happy tank before you, I guess, fill up that one. I don't know. I was going to try to make some kind of like double tank, like from a, an old truck analogy, but it just didn't work out. I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. Also, the second tank is rusted and it won't switch over anymore because it's from like the early 60s. Huh. Well, Okay. I guess, I guess we'll go on then. <laughs> and it's a conspiracy theory. Maybe jet fuel really can't melt steel. Uh, James David Tabor here, dumpster underscore flower. Uh, short answer to the question is yes. Uh, longer answer. I think more so with film because of the added cost. Um, I've let, I've actually let film stay in the canister for over 10 years because I just figure, well, who the hell is going to see them anyway? It's more, you know, I'd rather have a sandwich than, you know, see what's on this stupid fucking roll again. Um, I didn't shoot for probably 10 years um, because of it. It just becomes a thing. Like, who's going to see it? Who the hell cares? Um, why am I doing any of this? <clears throat> uh, oh, uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> uh, well, I guess, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting a, a complete existential crisis when we asked this question. But, I mean, honestly, it makes sense. You I know? think it's important to question ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we make art for ourselves, we keep saying. But we also make art for other people. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't be sharing art with people. I think it's hard to, especially at first or until you get clicked into an algorithm or something with social media or you make connections in, in the in the meat world, it's hard to get noticed and it's hard to be seen. And it's really, really easy to feel like you're invisible. I felt like that a lot with just being a young mother. Um, yeah. I was really young and I just felt out of place and I didn't, I didn't find my people. Um, and it's also probably because of like the area that I was in, of course, too. So I, I understand that. And it's like I get into those moods, especially if I'm like frustrated about stuff. An another reason why to just like, if you can develop your film, you know, use Cafinol if you need to. At least if it's important enough for you to see the pictures, uh, to do it. If not, let them, let them marinate a little longer. Also, mm. I'm glad that you are sharing your handle dumpsterflower <laughs> underscore flower because that's just such a great name. <laughs> I it love is. it so much. <laughs> and sometimes like we have to find the magic in photography. And for a lot of people, magic is in development. You know, it's not necessarily the magic of taking pictures. For some it is. Mm -hmm. But the magic of developing is really, I mean, you you have something in a thing that you can't open. You can't expose it to the light until you do some stuff, until you pour one thing into another thing. And then you can pull it out and then there's images. They're negatives, but they're images on that mm -hmm. film. That's amazing. It is. I mean, I mean, cyanotyping even, like you don't even need yeah. a darkroom for that. You can, yeah. you can ex expose dumpster flowers from outside <laughs> and, and make prints out of it. And that's fucking awesome. Yeah. You know? I, I know what he's saying and I get like that. I feel like that a lot sometimes. Like, why am I doing like Instagram? You know, I, yeah. I just wrote like this huge, long, ridiculous piece that we're only using a very small section of because it was like seven pieces in one. And it started with the, when Facebook and Instagram fell off the face of the earth that one day, because they had to like erase some like secret, super secret stuff or whatever. I think that's a the official story. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of conspiracy theories. <laughs> I know. So I was just thinking about it. I was like, well, shit. I was, we're, we're kind of like, we use, Instagram a lot for our podcast. Yeah, almost exclusively. And we kind of put like, I guess all our, I don't know what's up with me today and the old people's things, but I guess we're putting all our eggs in one basket and I'm not sure if that was a good idea. Now we're <laughs> counting our chickens before they're hatched. Uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to have some wine before it's time. Oh, well, let's find ourselves an itch to scratch with the last one. Hey guys, it's Suzanne. I knew I had to call in on this answering machine question because if I have anxiety or basically any kind of mood with whether I'm feeling down or whatever, I know that the cure for me is to go out and shoot. So how it affects my photography is it gets my butt out the door if I haven't been out the door. Um, and it'll make me understand that I probably haven't been out to shoot enough because photography is what calms me. Uh, if you're wondering if it affects what I shoot, I was trying to think about that and I don't really know. I don't think it does. I think it's just that it motivates me to get out the door because I know it'll make me feel better. I like that certainty. Absolutely. And her voice is amazing. Super oh. soothing. Oh my God, yeah. Like I kind of want her to 
encourage me to go out and shoot. Like I would be like, Suzanne, can you just tell me to get out of the house and shoot today? <laughs> get your butt out there and shoot. Like she would do it and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, if anybody needs encouragement, I absolutely will give you like a million ridiculous ideas and I will be your biggest fan. Everybody I will cheer on to go out and shoot. Of course. It's true. I can attest to this. Mm-hmm. I'm try- I've been trying to get him to the ocean like for a million years. I even send him like pictures of his area and like what it looks like at low tide, if he went to the tide pools and how much texture and colors down there, how beautiful it would look in photographs. What did I say? Did I say no? <sighs> uh, you said that uh, I used to go there a long time. You know, just the normal. And to hear our answers to this question, you have to tune into the next Dev Party, where we will be talking a little bit about that. But first, or next, what is the question for the next episode? The questions that we've been asking have been kind of heavy lately, and I wanted to kind of lighten things up just a little. I really like hearing from everybody. Also, it makes me feel at least I'm not alone in my complete, like, crazy anxiety, like, ah, you know, like, oh, I have all my friends here with me. <laughs> We're all we can not just here. all we can all just be anxious together. <laughs> uh, so we decided to lighten it up. So next question will be: Tell us about your film photographically related animal encounters. And now for something completely Tiffin. Hey all Thrillance gang, it's your boy slash girl slash favorite pasta salad, Tifferoni Sinclaroni, dropping in for a quick second. Just a quick second, please don't leave me, keep me company. Okay, okay, thank you. I wanted to share with y'all some news. This film nerd had her first portrait shoot. That's right, I finally did it. But, for the sake of transparency, allow me to confess expectations going in from both parties were incredibly low. I basically shot portraits for my co-workers because a while ago we had a photographer come in and photograph us in order to have an image associated with our respective mini bios within the company's new website and not to slander, not to discredit, but we were all pretty bummed with our portrait slash headshots. Like, the background that was used was a dumpster because according to the photographer, that's where the lighting was mega prime. I may not know much about a lot of things, but I can definitely say that wasn't true. Like, we weren't even asked which side was our best side, which, in case any of my coworkers are listening, all of our sides are our best sides because we're an attractive bunch, right fellas? Anyways, when we received our proofs, we knew the finished product wasn't going to be that much better. So the gang dissembled and asked if I could do better. I responded with an overly enthusiastic, probably not, but I'll definitely try. And we planned for a date when we all knew both the CEO and CFO would be out of office. Although they probably wouldn't have mind. Anyways, I rolled up with the RB and absolutely no game plan whatsoever, which has proven to be my recipe for success. Regarding the film stock, I went with the obvious choice and shot a pro pack of Portrait 400. The overall consensus was that we liked the green background, but we just didn't want it to be the aforementioned graffiti dumpster. 
So I had the guys pose in front of the vertical wall garden we have at the front entrance. We don't sell life insurance or anything, but I told them to channel their inner insurance salesperson and really give it to the camera. I threw out a couple poses and then I had them pose a bit more casually towards the end of their turn, I guess? I don't feel comfortable calling it a session because I feel like you sort of have to earn the right to say that. I don't know. I only planned to photograph four of my coworkers that day, so I used a roll for each. The last roll, I saved just for fun. The fellows are car guys, and they're obsessed with their vehicles, as you might expect, and the deal was they would do any pose I instructed, if and only if they were allowed to pose freely in front of their cars. Obviously, I happily obliged, and I had a blast shooting through that role. I now understand the appeal of being a portrait photographer. Not to say that I am one, but I get it, you know? There's this joy that comes across people's faces when they're really feeling themselves in a moment. And to have the privilege of capturing their happiness? I don't know, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And like, the biggest thing is having this immense trust placed upon you, the photographer, by other people. Like, they literally trust that you're not going to make them look bad. That's... That's pretty intense. I definitely wish I would have had a spare role to continue the just for funsies portion of the shoot, but it is what it is. I took their portraits what at this point would be last Wednesday, and I plan on dropping off the rolls at the best lab in LA, aka the Fromex, on Sunday. So I guess we'll see how I did. I will obviously ask the guys for permission before sharing any of the images, but here's hoping they say yes. And don't worry, I didn't even pack the Arby's dark slide. We all know I have a history with that dark slide. Cool beans. That's all I have for y'all this week. Stay cool and enjoy the rest of the episode. So, Vanya, you've taken a photo or two that you just like love, right? A couple times. Maybe it was on that like amazing day where everything was just awesome. I think we've all had something like that. The day was great. The shooting was great. And when you got home and you dev the stuff, the the photo was great. It's a trifecta of fucking perfection. Mm, it's like the it was like a unicorn Pegasus kind of horse. <laughs> like not only just a unicorn, but also a Pegasus too. Can you have it, one of those? Uh, I think uh, aren't all Pegasi unicorns? No, no, they don't okay. have horns. I don't know. They're completely different species. <sighs> okay, they can't even like they can't even mate. I. Ooh. Can unicorns and pegasuses, can they mate? I guess so. Do they get like like mules? Are they like really just fucked up <laughs> mules? They are, aren't they? Well, that's awful. Like little little wings that don't do anything. Oh no, like little tiny baby ones that you yeah. can't even fly. Like, yeah. oh, like, that's how we got chickens. I thought it was dinosaurs, but I guess not. Do pegasuses <laughs> have two rib cages? And how does that work? Oh my gosh, you and the two rib cage thing. Every time you're trying to ruin my life. Also, my room was like covered in unicorns and pegasus. Like a Lisa Frank kind of thing? No, not just that. Like, do you remember in the early 90s when wallpaper was kind of like coming back and they would do like borders of like specific things? Mm -hmm. I had like unicorn borders in my room. Oh. Yeah. 
Nice. It was a rental too, which is funny that my mom was like, we're going to just set, I think she was just trying to make me happy because we, I think we like uh, lost the other house and so we had to oh. move. So she's like, how can I fix this? <laughs> she just left everything that she loved and her, her gymnastics, everything. And now she lives in some random small town. I know, Unicorn Borders. And oh, it I was must like, have worked. Yeah. You're it still did. talking about it. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. I had like framed posters of like unicorns and like pegasuses and jewelry i was all about it do we want to start an equine podcast the equine cast sure okay well we'll 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 workshop that one okay but yeah it's easy to feel like meaningful i have like a lot of meaning with your really good photos from really good days and really good shooting but what about your shitty photos it's probably not going to get a ton of likes on instagram or anywhere And you can barely stand it yourself, but what meaning can you get out of it anyway? So we want to talk a little bit about finding meaning in your shitty work. (laughs) Not just yours, ours too. Yeah. Well, let's talk about ours a little bit. Usually you don't want to talk about one of our, one of our listeners' shitty work? No. No? Okay. All right. Fine. We'll talk about ours. I'm not the judge of their work. They're the (laughs) judge of their own work. Okay. I, I, I. I used to post a lot more and I used to post a lot more of my shitty work too, just because I felt like it was important to, to show that it's not just all perf- perfection all the time. And it's definitely not like perfection at all ever, but I try, of course we all try to get good pictures. I mean, that's kind of like the whole point, right? <laughs> but it's none of there. them are all like sharing, not all are going to be good. Of course not. But how can you get some sort of meaning out of the shittiest photo you've ever taken? Not one that's like like a bad photo, but one that's just like, it just doesn't work. There's nothing happening here. For me personally, I think it's more about the day. I think there's meaning in that time. It's kind of like how I feel about my tattoos because people are like, oh, what's that mean? And I'll like tell them some fucking stupid story if they want to hear it. But it doesn't even matter if I get tattooed. You know, I have a tattoo on my hands that I got when I was like, 13 years old in my art class in uh, where we were doing India ink and in art class and everybody on my table has a dot on their arm and I still have mine and I will never get rid of it because I love it. It's my favorite (laughs) tattoo. It's a dot and I did it myself in class. So it's meaningful to me. And that's kind of how I feel about some of those shitty days that maybe I didn't really get the greatest photos ever, but there was more than just the photos. There was the experience. There was maybe some lessons learned. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, maybe some film issues happened, or maybe no film at all. Maybe I didn't bring any film or forgot, or maybe my batteries. You know, there's tons of things that happen throughout the day. And I think it's easy for us to kind of see a full day of excursion. And then when you finally develop, and you're like, oh my God, none of these, this is all shit. But you forget that, like, how you felt through that experience. Like, how did it feel to, like, do those things? So one of the examples I had was Valley of Fire. Mm -hmm. This was a couple years ago. And the pictures are shit. Let me just tell you guys. They're shit. What's the Valley (laughs) of Fire? Valley of Fire is in Nevada. And it's a small state park just maybe, like, 45 minutes north of Vegas. If you guys haven't gone, it's it's definitely worth a look. It's absolutely gorgeous. You just get off the main highway and you can actually drive it all the way back to the highway. So that's kind of nice. And uh, there's a couple campgrounds in there and some lovely hikes and beautiful red 
rocks and it does look like a valley of fire. It's gorgeous. I went there by myself. I woke up at like three or four o'clock in the morning. The first thing I think of when I think of this trip, and I think I even mentioned it on the podcast at some point, around 4.30, 5 o'clock, I was listening to a specific song and I was right outside of like Tehachapi or something. I don't know, somewhere over there. And the sun was coming up and it was so beautiful. It was just like gorgeous. And I was like, fuck, like this is the most amazing thing ever. Also, I was shooting, I was on a trip to photograph and I was on a trip to photograph by myself. And I was driving at least six plus hours to that place. And it was one of the first times I ever did that. And it was like so liberating. It felt so good. I like had happy tears in my eyes. I was like proud of myself. I think that as a mom or, you know, as someone with a large family, I always feel like I have to like have somebody with me and I can't have like alone time. I've definitely gotten a lot better at that, you guys. Um, But this was one of the first trips that I ever did. And it was just, it was liberating. I was like, what the fuck? Why haven't I done this more? I camped by myself and I I made just a small, like I didn't, I didn't need to feed a million people. <laughs> I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. It was amazing. <laughs> so yeah, tri- the photos absolutely sucked. Did I learn things? Yes. Obviously don't shoot at high noon. And if so, like you better be doing something interesting. <laughs> I think that not everybody has that experience. But it is something that I feel it's important. I've had some of some people actually that I have known for many years, like, oh, wow, like you go and do that all by yourself. Like, I would never do that. And I'm like, well, why not? And like, obviously, I'm not going to force anybody to like do it if they don't want to. But it is like an empowering thing for yourself (laughs) to do that. Why why can't I? Is it because I'm a woman? No, fuck that. Like, like I said, bring an extra chair or bring a pair of like old work boots or something and leave them outside your tent. So it looks like there's like a big scary person with you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have really amazing days that come out with, with bad pictures. And one of the ways that you can find meaning in that is, is the memories. The pictures aren't great, but they will remind you of Mm -hmm. that time that you had. And maybe you don't need that reminder, but the pictures are there in case you do. And you have those memories. Also, don't bring the 500 ELM Hasselblad hiking. <laughs> I've learned that myself. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Note to self. In the no. desert, at least, you know? Ugh. There's just things where you're like, okay, I am not going to use this anymore if it's over 105 degrees. <laughs> Reminds me about when I did the Nez Perce trip. Mm-hmm. And all of my photos were were ruined and I was really bummed. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I'm not going to go on about it. But that entire time I was shooting, that like 10 days or 14 day stretch was some of the most amazing two weeks of my life. I had fun that I've never had before. I've seen places I've never seen before. And I was just ecstatic the entire time. I loved it. And I don't really have pictures to show for it. Was that the time that you, like, your car was balancing because, like, I think it was your story and you went on this road and it wasn't even a road and you were literally just climbing on rocks for, like, 40 minutes? Oh, it was a lot longer than 40 minutes. But, yeah, it was, yeah, okay, there were some things I do forget. (laughs) Some lessons learned that uh, a Subaru can go on, it was two wheels. It It was a little hairy. Yes, that was part of that. And I did kind of forget about that. 
But it's okay. I'm here to remind you. Thank you. But I do, when I see the pictures and I do look at them once in a while, I, I do get that like, I can't show these to anybody. They're not what I wanted them to be, but mm -hmm. I'm, I can see them and I can remind myself of those places and the history behind it. And I, I don't know, I just fall back in love with that. And so there's so much meaning in these pictures that I just can't show to anybody. I met you in Yellowstone. Yeah. And you were on your trail. Mm-hmm. And you had your book out and you're like looking for particular spots and it was just really cool to watch. You kind of work that way. It was a different way that I'm used to seeing people photograph. Yeah. And I liked it. I'm glad I could help. <laughs> oh, so speaking of the road, but I took the Century 9 out. That's a, a big 8x10 studio camera. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it is back home in my studio, aka my living room, on the stand. But I brought it because... I really wanted to try to start like actually photographing with it. I've been holding on to it and like kind of getting like trying to trying to get to the point, like get to the this is the camera I want to use for my portraits. Sure. So I brought it and I was ill prepared. I forgot a whole pack of film. I did oh, have no. some Arista. <laughs> yeah, I did have some Arista. Um, so that was fine. I, I shot 100 speed, but I was really looking forward to using that big giant World War II lens. And that's kind of more of like a two second or one second kind of exposure yeah. type thing. So I didn't really get to use that. And that was a bummer. And then, of course, I like makeshift, like I bungee corded the camera to a tripod and then like lifting it out of the car and <laughs> putting it back in. Like it got off the track a few times and that was a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's not the best travel camera. It's not, but I'm so glad I brought it because it it was like determination on my part and I wanted to build a relationship with the camera. And it is, it's ridiculous how huge it is, but I fucking love that camera so much. It's so <laughs> exciting. Also, just to let you know, I recently spent like way too much money on my credit card. I purchased this three-piece Edwardian like morning outfit, not for Halloween, for every day, obviously. It's about the same time like when the century was made. And I was like, okay, this is going to be awesome because I'm totally going to try to like take a self-portrait with that camera in this outfit. <laughs> so it's like all these things kind of come together. It like makes it meaningful to me because it's like, okay, why the fuck like would you buy this like old weird outfit? And it's like, well, because because I like weird old things. <laughs> I like well, weird old things. As one of those old things. <laughs> as one of those weird old things. Thank you. Uh, well, you brought your camera this past summer. I brought what I normally do. And I'm discovering that I don't like almost any of my photos from this, this past summer. Oh, no. Why? I don't know. Well, okay. I do know. While you and I had an amazing time, like seriously, a wonderful time, the skies were shit. Mm -hmm. We had great time, bad skies, except for a few places. And it's in those few places that I have really good photos and really good memories. But in all of the other places, for the most part, I just have really good memories. Yeah, it was a lot of fire sky, too. It was a, a lot, lot of fire of... sky. And then when there wasn't smoke everywhere, there was just no clouds at all. So the sky was just boring. Yeah. And even after we parted, I went to Texas and I took, actually, I took 10, 11 rolls of amazing Texas photos that I'm just in love with that I can't show anybody yet because they're for a future project. Mm. So I need to learn, and maybe this is something that we can put a we on, need to learn that 
the meaning of our photos, the meaning that we derive from our photos can't come from the acceptance or the likes of others. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, it can, but maybe it shouldn't at least initially. We need to love our own photos. We do. I think we need to just be able to see the positive things just like we see the negatives. It's like writing a review. You don't want to really write a review if it was good, unless it was like absolutely amazing. Like no one is just like, oh, this place was like really good. I'm going to, I'm going to write a review. No, it's like this place was fucking awful and I'm mad about it. So I'm going to write a bad review. (laughs) And that's kind of how I feel about my photos sometimes. Like, I'm just like, I'm fucking mad at this. I just, they don't exist anymore. And that's not fair because there's, they do exist and they are part of my journey. <laughs> and we don't have to share them, but No, we don't. We have to find meaning in them. I think we need I think it's so important to find meaning in every role. I think and so whatever too. that is. Whatever every role, every sheet. And I'm not talking about like, you know, the meaning of life or anything like that. Just 42. just something <laughs> something positive maybe. Yeah. Maybe a pat on the back is okay once in a while for yourself. I think we need to. But also just realizing that you were able to take photos. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so today, um, you know, again, I told you I went in the water. It was like fairly decent size out there. I don't know if I got any good photos. It wasn't really like really good surfing waves. So I ended up actually taking a lot of wave pictures without people on it, which was great. Did I get any good pictures? I don't fucking know. Also, don't fucking care because I got out of the water and I felt like a new person. I was like... I've been so stubborn, stuck at home, just kind of in a mood, and it just changed everything for me in that 45 minutes of swimming around and getting tossed. It was great. So it was meaningful. So those pictures, hopefully they're good. If not, it's okay. The experience was worth it. We've wanted to get this photographer on the podcast since the very beginning of the podcast. And finally, we have her on. Yay. Yeah, I think she was on the list, like the first ever list that we... It's Han Fawn, <laughs> at Han Fawn on Instagram. Yay. Amazing portrait photographer from the Bay Area. The best film photography friend you never knew you wanted. Let's give her a call. Hello. Hello. Awesome. How are you today? I'm well. How are you guys? Good. Great. It's, it's so awesome to finally get you on. I know. I know. <laughs> really, really honored. Thank you. Oh, well. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a film shooter? I, I guess I would like to say right now I'm predominantly shooting medium format, but you know, getting into the whole foray of exclusively shooting medium format, maybe a little bit large format, and then focusing on just portraitures. All of that kind of stemmed from, you know, me originally shooting concerts and then kind of just like bringing a camera wherever I went when uh, I was in middle school, high school, and just kind of taking photos of friends. So I think that that's kind of where everything stemmed. Obviously, that was like, you know, the digital age when like, the Nikon D70s mm-hmm. first came out, and that was like the I coolest. Had one of those, right? Yeah, like when it came out, everyone had to grab it because it was like so. I don't know, like uh, 
I don't know, it was just like the digital camera DSLR. And, and uh, it definitely like set precedent to all of that and kind of like made that big jump from point and shoots to DSLR. Um, and I had that all the way up until college where I think I got the D90 after that. I have that one too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I was just following in your footsteps. <laughs> That's kind of where I got into like um, shooting concerts because I, I was working with like my um, college's newspaper. I, I kind of did that initially because I was like, I'm a broke college kid. I can't get into any concerts for free. And this is the way to do it. I, I think that is what kind of manifested like where I am now, where I, I like to photograph people. And I like to have like a story that is, you know, tied to that person. And I think it's a little more meaningful, at least for me, um, if I if I am able to get like a narrative or, um, you know, sit down with someone and just kind of talk with them before taking their portrait. On your IG posts and on your blog, which is how most people are going to know you from, you write a lot. How does photography interact with your writing? How do they go together? Like, you know, when you first start, I don't know if there's like a progression you guys made, right? Like I, I go through these waves where I'm like, I think the less I say, the better. Cause it's just like, you know, your interpretation as a viewer, what the photograph is about. Yeah. Obviously not pertaining to like portraits, but you know, if it's like, um, I don't know, even if it's a gas station or um, whatever very niche photo that you have, right. If there's no caption, you can interpret it however you want. And then I kind of was like, Maybe I should put song lyrics that would make me like seem really deep or like if I put poems or whatever, just quoted people. Right. Like that would be cool, too. Now that like I'm I'm kind of photographing people, like I said, I think it's really cool to to get the viewers to also like know about the people behind the photographs. And so just like a quick blurb about who they are is really important to me because it's it's not like I just shot somebody a, a text message and said, hey, I just want your photograph to add to my collection. Like, let's let's build a relationship and then let me write about you. And that's kind of, I think, the progression of where I'm at. Like, you can kind of tell with the way that I write about, like, photos with my mom or my dad, you know, because there's a deeper relationship there, obviously. I'm able to maybe describe them more or or I'm able to get into my feelings more versus like, you know, if I just met you and we talked for an hour, right? I can describe like how we interacted and how you came off to me. But other than that, like I can't, you know, like wax poetry or whatever it is and then make it sound cool. So as a portrait photographer, what are you trying to show your viewers? Like, what, what would you like them to see in your portraits? I would want someone to see this photo and be like, oh, like, that's someone that I love or, or that's someone that I know. And then, you know, with the description or the caption, it's like, oh, I feel this way about someone. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very relatable. Um, but I also, again, like, in the photo, I, I would like to be able to describe you know, like who they are, I guess, like their aura or their mannerisms or characteristics, whatever it is, like in that photograph alone. And I am kind of having a difficult time doing that. I don't know. I don't, I wish I had the word. It's just when you look at it, you're like, damn, that's a good portrait. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I know that this person's life was rough, or I know that they're a good person and they have a good heart, or maybe Absolutely. they were messed up and now, you know, they're doing better. But like, like that, you know, like you just know about the person um, mm -hmm. by just looking at the portrait. You shoot a lot of photographers. 
Yes. Do you find that there's a difference between shooting photographers and shooting non-photographers? Absolutely. Yeah. Because you know us, like in front of the cameras, I mean, every time I photograph someone who is predominantly a photographer, their first question is like, what do I do with my hands? Right. You're like, oh, yeah. Yes. Oh. Can I just, is this natural? <laughs> and um, it's harder because like, I, I just want the natural look like, you know, stand however you would stand if no one were looking at you or, you know, sit however, whatever feels comfortable for you. But like someone who is keen and has like an eye for portraits, like they'll know like, well, I have to kind of be like this. So it's not as natural, but it'll look good in the photo, whatever. Whereas I'm just like, I have no direction either. Um, your hands probably look natural to me but then like when I come out it's like you know something should have been like this and instead it's like this Um, (laughs) right so yeah it's weird because like no photographer knows how to pose (laughs) no it's Um, terrible I don't know why it doesn't translate not at all yeah yeah yeah. is that why so many photographers like to be like shot with their cameras yeah yeah (laughs) and I like that better too because it's just like all right you know you have something to do with your hands it's Mm -hmm. not entirely (laughs) um awkward why do you think most people want to get their portraits done? I don't know. Like, it still blows my mind when people say yes to let me take their, their photos. It's probably because a lot of people are used to it now. I feel like at least the people that I'm asking, I, I think that a lot of times, like, they're, they're happy because they know that I'm going to write something that I might not normally express to them, like, through text or whatever. Like, I'm not going to be all, like, mushy-gushy or whatever, you know, <laughs> towards them. But then, like, they'll see this... Um, this description of them um, when the photo comes out. And I'd like to think that most people like that. (laughs) And so now they're like more than willing to let me take their photographs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why don't you walk us through taking one of your portraits? How does that happen? Oh man. It's like, chaos maybe organized chaos at at the very best, you know? Mm -hmm. So if it's someone I know and like we planned for it, like let's say, um, the photo that I have of Kate and her friend on Portra, I think it was like VC, 400 VC or something. That one we planned and I told them like, you know, the flowers by my house are in bloom. Like right now, everything is gorgeous and it's vibrant. They're pink. And then there's this like huge pink um, RV that's parked next to it too. So like, you know, we had planned for them to kind of be in the intersection of those two things and then just wear like loud colors themselves. Mm-hmm. And like none of that happened because then the people in the RV were like, "Can you please not photograph our RV?" And we're like, oh, okay, Aww. yeah, it's, it's all right though. It happens, you know. And then like I think they had just come back from the gym or something, so they were like, "Sorry, we forgot," and we kind of just put on whatever we had in our bags. And I was like, "That's fine," because you know the flowers are still there. So we set up, and it's just a quick like, just be natural, you know, like. Mm-hmm act like you really are friends (laughs) um, you know sometimes like I want them to smile sometimes I won't sometimes please look at the camera sometimes don't and then and then it's just that yeah so there's like really no forethought besides that otherwise it's like like, you know on a photo walk like hey I've never seen you before let's walk for a little bit we can get to know each other and then can I just take your photo because this scene looks really cool the light is great here like let's just do it Um, and that's usually how a lot of my photos are made uh, zero direction and how to pose, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to pose myself. So it just looks more natural, though, when you kind of when you don't pose people, because it's just the, how they look. That's just how they stand normally. I like how you describe that, because, yeah, and I think like 
how quickly the, the photograph is made to like mm-hmm. attribute to that. Cause then there's no time to overthink like how you're standing or, you know, like uh, what you should look like, like if you're like pensive or sad or whatever it is, like, you know, like I said, yeah, there's just absolutely no forethought. It just is. I just want your photo because you look nice. You're a good person. I want to talk about you. <laughs> and then, yeah, like I said, the setting is cool too. So. So I found your blog (laughs) and it's awesome. I love it. I really, really like the stories that you had. And I was going to ask you, what other stories have you captured with photography or what do you have any coming up that you are trying to work on? Yeah. So I'm trying to work on like a a series with my parents. They were immigrants. And by the time they got here, like they were already in their, I want to say like early 30s. So like, you know, like all of the monumental things that you go through in life, like growing up in America, like prom, graduating from high school or college, getting into college, whatever it is, like they they missed all that, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I kind of wanted to have them like relive, even though they never really lived through these experiences. I've been trying to like think of really monumental events, like growing up in America kind of thing, and Mm -hmm. have them pose for those types of events. So like, we've got a tuxedo that I think we're going to use reuse like from my grandpa who passed, um, and my dad's going to wear that. And then we're just going to find like a fun prom dress for my mom to recreate prom, right? Like they had to have like a really small wedding in Vietnam, because you know, they couldn't afford that so like I kind of wanted to redo that too Mm -hmm. and so it's it's just like moving through um time as if they they had or they did experience these really cool and and very momentous events so sweet I'm sorry (laughs) yeah no that's that's fine but it's it's hard like at least for me I'm like I can only think of a handful of things that were meaningful for me but like for them it's everything you know Mm -hmm. like the day that my mom became a U.S. citizen like she was like crying and she was just like saying the Pledge of Allegiance all day because she's like, I got to practice. Yeah. I want to go in. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I turned 16 and I became a, a legal citizen or whatever. And that wasn't a big deal for me, but like for her, it was. So it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, I think thinking of these things and then um, having, having like a, a story or something to go along with it too is it's going to be challenging because then it's like sitting down with them and then talking with them and like, again, I don't think they'll understand these concepts. Like what is a prom? And, you know, like they're cool because they'll wear whatever and pose however I want them to. But like, <laughs> I don't think they understand like, oh, you you go to school, you know, like late at night and then you just dance all night and mm-hmm. you get all dressed up and you pay a lot of money. Like, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so like for them, that would be like really weird. But but that's so sweet and interesting, too, to, to kind of see it from somebody else's eyes. And I mean, your parents aren't that old, but being able to share that experience with people that kind of have the same type of history. Like my mom was from Chile. I'm first generation also. There's just weird stuff that like I have to <laughs> explain sometimes that some people don't understand. I, I think it's a great idea. I love it. Yeah. And I absolutely love that you they will just like, put on clothes for you that is so awesome (laughs) so you are kind of creating like a project here it's all in its very you know early infant stages like it's still I think I've been working on this for like six months and and it's still difficult because like I said I can't I can't think of events that are you know that meaningful 
I was actually looking for, I think this, you wrote this question about your mom with the rake. That's, that was fun. That was impromptu. Like I walked out when I was at home and it's like summer and she's in like this bathrobe and she's just raking the backyard. And I'm like, can you hold on? Let me go grab my camera real quick. You know? And then afterwards, like I dragged her to the front yard and I was like, can you pretend you're clipping the hedges and just, just do stuff that, you know, you would do if I weren't here. And I was just kind of following her around and taking photos. She's like, I want the neighbors to see, I look like a mess. And I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> Every, like my, my followers are all going to see this. So <laughs> okay if the neighbors see you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just really happy that they're like, that's ah, fine. Just let her do whatever she wants. <laughs> Most of your work is, I think all of your work is natural lighting. You don't use any kind of like studio lights or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So what then makes for a good backdrop? Like, how do you know, like, here I am, here's the picture. Right, right. Um, I think it depends on what camera I'm using. So like, you know, the Pentax 6.7 with the 105, I will always shoot it wide open. I don't care, you know, like bright sunlight, whatever. I'll find a shady spot and I'll shoot you wide open. Nice. if it's the speed graphic, my arrow Ektar is on that all the time. And that, you know, is like a 2.5 or something like that. So I would want bokeh, you know, anything with a lot of distinction from the foreground and the background. And I'm really lucky because like, you know, we have the Golden Gate Park, which has a ton of forested areas. I think I've been to Mount Tam a couple of times with my friends, Toby and Sebastian. And that makes for, for a great backdrop because like you get that, again foreground background distinction you have clouds in the back and you have all these like overgrown shrubs or weeds whatever and then the person yeah I think I think for for the most part I'm shooting with those two cameras and that's what I want but if it's something that what was I shooting the other day the the Fuji I think the the lowest aperture it has is like a 3.5 I want to say or a Mm 3.8 so it's not that great but it's still workable and I I kind of then would pick something that is like contrasting to whatever the person's wearing. Golden hour is great. Blue hour is equally as great. So, uh, so where can people find you on Instagram? Yeah. On Instagram, my handle is at Han Fawn spelled phonetically H A W N F A W N. And I always answer my DMS. So shoot me one and let's be friends. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Awesome. It was so nice talking with yeah, you. Thank you. Well, thank you first and foremost for accommodating. Yeah, oh, of course. Of course. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. <Bye-bye>. Bye. <laughs> okay, so how do you say this? I carte de visite. <laughs> that sounds a little carte more Italian than I think it is. Wait, let's let's ask. I got a recording. Carte visite. Carte visite. Hmm. Well, they don't even pronounce the day. Carte visite. Do they just is the day implied? I think it's D technically, but okay, D. We'll we'll try. Good it. luck. Carte visite. I hope someone's laughing at us. It, carte visite. You like this guy? I don't even like the way he says it. Do you have like a lady saying it? Carte de visite. Wait, what? She says it differently. Totally differently. Carte de visite. Now she pronounces the D. And you can tell visite. that it's visite. Visite. Carte de visite. Carte de visite. Or oh carte de visite. Ah! In the early decades of photography, 
sitting for your portrait was a ritual reserved for the wealthy classes, with the costs of the rare photographer, the glass, the frame, the experience, few besides the rich could afford the luxury of this one-of-a-kind photograph. But in 1854, that all began to change, though not without the protestations of the elites. It was in this year that André Adolphe Eugène Desdiri patented the carte visite, <laughs> literally visiting card. And to understand the carte de visite, we have to first understand the carte de visite. What we mean is, before the photographic visiting card, there was a regular visiting card, roughly the size of a modern-day credit card. The visiting card was like a less informative business card. Your name would be printed upon it, as well as your address. Other information, such as when you were available to receive visitors, could also be printed. Often, these cards also known as calling cards, would be ornately decorated in fancy engravings. Over the years, these were introduced, like literally in the 1600s. Calling cards were mostly reserved for the gentry. They were all the rage in Europe, but caught on in the States as well. And like everything Victorian, calling cards, visiting cards, had some intense etiquette attached to them. There is a, there's one etiquette book that has 45 pages of visiting card etiquette. And it mm -hmm. was like, who could give their visiting card to whom? And if you bent the corner of the visiting card you gave to a certain person or a certain class of person, it meant one thing. But if you bent another corner, it meant another thing. And there were rules on when you could just show the fuck up at somebody's house or when they could show up at yours. And it had a lot to do if you were working class or had a job or had open hours visiting. They didn't have phones, so you couldn't just call up, but there was a lot of etiquette. They Victorians may have taken it too far. They had all the time in the world, I guess, so why not? Why not? Until Desteri's invention of the CDV, photographic portraits served almost no social purpose. After all, only one copy of early photographs existed. There was no way to pass them out like calling cards. That is, until Disdiri's... Carte visite. <laughs> Disdiri... Okay, we know we're pronouncing Disdiri wrong, but, you know, come on. Disdiri created his CDVs with a camera fitted with four lenses and a plate holder with a movable dark slide. This allowed only one-eighth of the photographic plate to be exposed at a time. And this, along with a special plate holder that you could, like, flip around, allowed him to capture eight portraits on a single plate. Typically, the pose was full-length and standing. Since there was no simple way to just copy a photo, it was easier to take the same pose twice, or in the case of the early CDVs, eight times. The photos were then printed on a single large sheet of albumin, cut into eight individual portraits, and then each were pasted onto a small four-inch by two-and-a-half-inch paperboard. The CDV craze fell upon Europe in the late 1850s, especially and basically only with the gentry. Unlike calling cards, CDVs weren't cheap, and being able to toss them around as if they were left an impression of prosperity and power. French power, but still power. In French homes, baskets were set by the door, often overflowing with CDVs, another sign of wealth and being up to date on the latest fashions. And when they came to America in 1859, the CDV was even more popular. A year after their debut, they became the trend. This drove down the prices and unfortunately the quality. 
but it allowed the craze to spread to nearly all classes of mostly white society. They were so affordable, in fact, that they were purchased by the dozen and handed out to family and friends, and even acquaintances and strangers. They had become, in effect, the first social media. Our great-great-grandparents likely shared photos of themselves like we share selfies on Instagram. And by 1862, this trend was dubbed cartomania or photomania. It was often lambasted in the press as effeminate and fancy. The jokes were sexist and homophobic, but that hardly stopped this new craze. CDVs soon became so much a part of Victorian culture, or as they called it then, life, in America, that a formal etiquette evolved along with them. Imagine that. Often used to show their membership in the higher classes, rules for proper, respectable CDV gifting were noted in pamphlets distributed by high-class photographers and, of course, in many, many books of etiquette. In one such pamphlet was printed the following. Go early when the photographer is fresh after a night's sound repose and before he has met with some nervous, restless sitter or spoiled child to try his temper and patience. For if the artist is in good humor, you will be more than you will be more likely to have a pleasant expression than if the contrary is the case. You don't like that voice? It was okay. All right. Go on. Sorry. There were other rules of etiquette expressing how to dress for the orthochromatic photograph. Blue showed up as white, while reds as black. Beyond that, the fashion of the day, muted shades of gray, was the rule, minus anything frilly or outlandish, of course. Posing was also subject to this new etiquette. Sitters were encouraged to be in a happy, obliging, believing state of existence whatever that means, the sitters were advised to forget where they were, to whistle Yankee Doodle in their heads, to think of a favorite place, one of my favorite pastimes, actually, anything to achieve a pleasant photo, except smiling, of course, that was right out. There was also etiquette dictating to whom you gave your likeness. This is where it was decided that the CDV absolutely did not serve as a calling card. While exchanging or simply handing your photo to a friend or acquaintance was begrudgingly permitted by the etiquette of the day, the leaving of CDVs in lieu of or accompanying traditional calling cards was dramatically poo-pooed. As 1869's Laws and Bylaws of American Society so plainly stated, A card with a photograph upon it, though to a certain extent fashionable, is a vulgarism that can never obtain general favor. If you are a gentleman, your visage may be reserved by the chambermaid to exhibit as one of her bows, and no lady, surely, would ever display her face on a visiting card. Another book, Social Etiquette, Manners, and Customs of Polite Society, warn young ladies to take heed. Do be careful about giving away your photographs, especially to men. You would hardly like to hear the comments that are sometimes passed about them. If you cannot learn to say no, refrain from displaying them to your gentleman friends. Maybe they are not gentlemen's at all. <laughs> Methinks you might be correct, Vanya. 
CDVs were widely popular. At the apex of their popularity in the mid-1860s, anywhere from 300 to 400 million were produced each year. I mean, they were just cranking them out. Yeah, they were. Yeah, so a lot of the photo studios had full staff available, and it was almost like kind of a line, a work line of people putting these together because it was time-consuming. This resulted in one of two things for the collector, a pile of CDVs or a photo album. And more than likely, several photo albums. These albums were specifically crafted to fit the 4-inch by 2.5-inch CDV size. They caught on so quickly that the pages of Vanity Fair poked a great deal of fun at them, as well as the whole cart craze. Give a woman a photographic album and she will not know peace, nor give her friends any, until every page is filled with the carta vista. Now, when we consider that all ladies have from one to five albums and that each album has a capacity from 20 to 100 card pictures and that the proportion of ladies in this geographical section stands, according to careful computation, three and one-fifth ladies to one gentleman, we arrive at the cheerful fact that the girl gender is actively engaged in dunning the other gender for several million heads. It matters not whether the damsels have known a man five minutes or five years, it is enough for them that they know him and that he carries a head. Of course, where so much pain is taken, considerable success is achieved, and it is not uncommon to see Miss Claudette or Miss Carey in possession of 500 photographs. We happen to know a young female who can show 38 John Smiths, 26 John Browns, 20 John Greens, 17 John Whites, 40 or 50 miscellaneous names, and 210 portraits of persons whose names have escaped her memory. She's still gathering and now, with praiseworthy precaution, writes the title of each individual represented. Where this craze will stop is hard to say. So basically, followers and... Uh, absolutely followers on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. There's 100%. no difference there. Also, it seems like the ladies at Vanity Fair are a little jealous because they were probably older and married and they could not have a bunch of hot dudes in their photo albums. Well, my thought was this was written by a man. Oh, maybe. And this was a man just kind of like, well, no lady wants one of my, what do you call them, heads? Which is just kind of gross. No lady wants one of my heads. And I have such a nice head. And they don't want it at all. Yeah, it's so silly. It's <laughs> very weird. silly. Apart from social currency and filling your photo albums, the CDV was marketed as a way to trace your own past. For the first time in human history, we had an inexpensive means of capturing our aging process. In the times before the CDV, a person might pose for a daguerreotype once or twice in their lives. And before photography, the wealthy and famous only might sit for their painted portrait but once. After the CDV, parents were encouraged to purchase photos of their kids as often as they could to mark each moment of growth. CDVs came to America during the build-up to Southern Secession and the Civil War, both directly caused by the South's insistence upon the right to own human slaves. CDVs aided both the white enslaver and the black enslaved. Prior to the war, photography in the South flourished about as well as it did in the North. Extensive daguerreotypes and even tintypes of enslaved people were rare, if there's, any, there's hardly any at all. But with the introduction of the CDV, but with the introduction of the CDV, slave owners now had an inexpensive way to keep track of the people they believed to be their property. This served them best when it came to runaway slaves. 
For instance, in 1863, when a black woman named Dolly escaped from Manigault Plantation in South Carolina, enslaver Louis Manigault produced CDVs of Dolly, offering a $50 reward for her return. Many slave owners insisted upon photographic records captured on CDVs. Those enslaved people posing for the photos were well-dressed and mannered. However, this ran the risk of humanizing black people. In an attempt to curb that possibility, many owners barred their slaves from posing in certain more regal and respectable ways. Following the demise of slavery and the end of the war, many of these CDVs were destroyed or hidden away by former enslavers and their disgraced families. This is not to say that the enslaved black people of the South did not also benefit from CDVs. In Georgia, for example, it was illegal for slaves to purchase anything costing more than a dollar. When CDVs dropped in price, those who were able to move around more freely were able to afford them. CDVs were also used by free black people as well as anti-slavery whites in the fight against the institution of slavery. In what now seems as exploitation or even white saviorism, so-called damage photos depicting the scars of escaped slaves were distributed widely across the North to show the horrors of slavery. These images managed to convince many, especially towards the end of the war, that slavery must be abolished. It was CDVs and CDVs alone that made this possible. Daguerreotypes were too expensive and not easily replicable and engravings in newspapers seemed more cartoonish than real. During the time of the CDV, it was almost unheard of for photos to be exchanged across racial lines. These rules of etiquette and tradition might have applied to both whites and free blacks of higher standing, but never together. It was understood that the exchange of CDVs could not cross that line. The Civil War itself played a large role in the popularity of the CDVs in two ways. After enlisting in the army, brand new soldiers, decked out in their brand new uniforms, tramped into the conveniently located photography studios to have their likenesses taken. These would be given to mom and dad, the grandparents, sisters and brothers, and of course, sweethearts, often plural. While movies and Civil War reenactors are often depicted carrying large folding cases containing glass daguerreotypes, it was much more common for the soldier to carry CDVs. The portability of CDVs allowed recruits to carry photographs of mom and dad and the rest of the family. Soon everyone had amassed a large collection of CDVs, and not just of friends, family, and sweethearts, but of celebrities as well. CDVs of actors, politicians, authors, and military commanders were produced in mass and sold at bookstores by traveling salesmen, at portrait studios, and by mail order. Celebrities would often sign exclusive contracts with photographers, and they'd both rake in the cash. And was there ever a killing to be made? A regular person could have their portrait taken for CDVs at the cost of around $2 or $3 per dozen. Celebrity CDVs would cost a dollar or more each, depending upon the fame of the celebrity. Celebrity CDVs became so popular that soon photographers were paying celebrities to sit for them. In fact, their popularity and inflated prices made way for an entire bootleg industry to blossom through the 1860s. The celebrity CDV was largely responsible for celebrity culture. Prior to CDVs, even prior to photography, galleries would be filled with paintings of often dead famous people. With the invention of photography, these galleries were lined with large-format daguerreotypes of anyone with a name. CDVs, however, invited the celebrities into our homes. Our photo albums were filled with not only friends and family and sweethearts, but with George McClellan, Edwin Booth, and Tom Thumb. This might have marked the first time that we fell for the line that celebrities were just like us. After all, there's Abe Lincoln right next to our cousin Lucy. Perhaps this was the birth of the parasocial relationship, that illusion of intimacy between yourself and a celebrity who has no idea you exist. 
And so, for six years, this cart mania overtook America. The exchanging of CDVs with nearly anyone you came into contact with created a deluge of photographs. The baskets were overflowing and the albums were bulging. The public began to outgrow the CDV. It was a trend, and like all trends, there's a short shelf life. But with this particular trend came two industries with everything to lose. First, with the popularity of the CDV, came countless photographers, many who could hardly do more than push a button and crank out CDVs. Thousands upon thousands of photographers of every level and class relied upon the CDV trend for their dinner. Second, along with the photographers was the photo album industry. The makers of these albums had fully embraced the CDV format. If the CDV went away, so did the photo albums. The decline of CDV sales became a worry in 1866. By this time, everyone had at least one taken. Photographers and the photo album industry took notice. The market was saturated with both CDVs and albums, and the only way to fix this mess was to introduce a new and slightly different format for people to collect. The Americans once again looked to Europe, where a new size of photograph had emerged. It was larger, six and a half by four and a quarter, and was known as the cabinet card, named thus because they were large enough to be displayed on your cabinet. The cabinet card, they believe, could solve a few problems. First, it was exactly like a CDV, but bigger. No new techniques or inventions were needed, and Americans loved bigger. Second, the larger size would show more detail. This feature alone would be enough for the cheapo fly-by-night button pusher photographer to give up, leaving the bulk of the customers for the professional shops. Unlike the small-time photographers producing small-time CDVs, professional studios did touch-ups, fixing blemishes and details unseen in smaller CDVs. This feature would also bring in more money. As for the photo album industry, cabinet cards would require a bit of retooling, but it would all essentially be the same, except that they'd be selling more albums. All that was really essential was that photographers and photo album makers decided upon a single size of the new formats. This little conspiracy nearly eliminated any VHS versus Betamax style format wars. While other sizes of photos were introduced, like the somewhat smaller Victorian card, photo albums were almost exclusively fitted for the new, larger cabinet cards. Cabinet cards would stick around for far longer than CDVs, but they would never fully replicate that card craze of the 1860s. It's not to say that cabinet cards were unpopular. In their day, they were the way to present your portraits. Both the photographers producing card photos, as well as the photo album industry, were unknowingly reliant upon one other thing the public's inability to easily do it themselves. While it seems like the CDVs, and to an extent the cabinet cards, democratized photography, it really just made a studio session and printing more available to many more people. What really drove the card mania wasn't so much the cheap photographs as it was the people's desire to participate in 19th century social media, to exchange photos with family, friends, strangers, and sweethearts. The CDV and cabinet card craze came to an end because in 1888, Kodak released the first consumer camera, the aptly titled Kodak No. 1, fully loaded with the newest nitrate film, intended to place photography directly into the hands of the amateur with an entire range of film and printing paper, making almost anyone a family photographer. The carte visite. 
ushered in the idea of photo sharing. This trend would come and go over the decades, from school photos to Instagram. But these cheap prints the size of a credit card were where it all began. Also, just a quick note, if you live in the LA area, there is a display of a bunch of cabinet cards. It's called Acting Out, Cabinet Cards and the Making of Modern Photography, 1870 to 1900. Uh, so basically, it's kind of an in-depth examination of cabinet cards, uh, how they were sold, and kind of what we discussed a little bit, but just at LACMA. So it actually has been up in display uh, since August 8th, and the the last day to see it is November 7th. So hurry up. Hurry up. The one thing we really didn't discuss much about cabinet cards is how they differed from CDVs. While CDVs were very much a full-length portrait, with cabinet cards, you got a lot more experimental looks to your photos. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Also, at the store, uh, the LACMA store, there's two books that you can get to. One's called Acting Out, Cabinet Cards, and the Making of Modern Photography, and also uh, Predicting the Past. They look actually very interesting, and I'm probably going to buy them both. Also, I like collecting cabinet cards and CDVs. I have uh, a pretty decent collection of both of them. I think I just feel bad that all these, like, Photos are just, no one cares anymore. So I, I care. I keep them. I would like to make my hallway all creepy people <laughs> staring when you walk down the, you just walk down my hallway. You're like, what the fuck? Why is there like thousands and thousands of CDVs staring at me? I'll be like, well, because that's how I want my hallway to be. I want all the eyes to move with you. And speaking of books, we used two for the most part for this piece. The main sources came from Galleries of Friendship and Fame, a history of 19th century American photograph albums by Elizabeth Siegel. Uh, there's a lot about the CDVs and a lot about the cabinet cards in there, though it does mostly focus on photo albums, which is really fascinating. We also used Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America, which is an amazing book by Matthew Fox Amato. These are both very readily Each episode of the podcast, we like to reach out to people who create zines, maybe pick them up or have them sent to us or acquire them somehow and tell you all a little bit about them. We've got two kind of interesting, very different zines this time around. Vanya, what have you got for us? I have Andrew Wamsley's zine, Desolation. And so Andrew's zine is basically packed full. The zine is kind of in our wheelhouse. He focus, focuses purposely to photograph the layers of history and how kind of nature has swallowed it up and weather has degraded it over the decades. Andrew might be one of the nicest people that I have ever been interviewed by. Uh, his attention to detail of the past is really, really fascinating, especially with my new world eyes, because, you know, I live in America. So I, I I couldn't even imagine, honestly, like living in a place like that without being extremely curious of what stood there like 500 or even thousands of years ago. Uh, history and photography kind of like go well together in that way. And honestly, if it didn't, then Eric and I probably wouldn't have a podcast. So <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. 
Kind of. <laughs> he does a special thanks to Kodak Alaris for the lovely color. It's a beautiful zine. It's very, like, it's simple, beautiful, kind of not exactly muted colors. There's some really beautiful color color work in here. So unfortunately, Andrew is not able to get them shipped to the United States right now. It's just been kind of a pain. So he has asked me to do something that I actually really wanted to do anyways. It's kind of like a flat Stanley kind of deal. <laughs> so he gave me a little notebook with some instructions. It starts off, thank you for taking part. He tells you to write your name down and, you know, the second person that had the zine. So that would be me. So I'd write my name down and the location and my links where you can find me and then send it to the next person. So I can send it to whoever I want. And so... Of course, naturally, I'm going to send it to Eric. Me? And then, Eric, you will be able to send it to whomever. So if there's anybody in the States that possibly really want Andrew Zine, even if it's just for a short while, contact Eric. Yeah, uh, you can contact me at uh, conspiracy.of.cartographers. But also, you should be following Andrew Walmsley at flogger, with a ph, dot co, dot uk on Instagram. Really fun stuff. I yeah his interview with me I had such a great time being interviewed by him. He's a, just a sweet sweet guy. His photos, especially his architectural work, is really fun. He's working yeah. on a I don't know if it's a larger project. I'm not sure what he's doing it with with it, but I saw a few of the images from it and it's exciting. He does some stuff with architecture that I don't know, it just really made me happy. I'm hoping he does something with that. But until then we have desolation and if you want it Contact me. I will get it to you. Obviously, I can only send it to one person. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> All right, next zine. Oh, well, my zine is called Abandoned Cameras Rescued Film by Mark Jensen, who I believe is a fellow Washingtonian. <gasps> this is the second zine in a row that I'm reviewing that was made up of found photos. It's, I don't know, I like this idea a lot. I might even end up doing it someday. I don't know. I'm not a collector of photos, but I'm kind of getting that itch. So I'd like to sometime dig a little bit deeper into that whole idea. But until then, there's Abandoned Cameras, Rescued Film, uh, The Zine by Mark Jensen. In this case, Mark didn't find a box of photos in an antique store. He found an old box camera in an antique store. He found several more and also picked up some exposed but undeveloped film off of eBay in various locations. And I'm sure he had people give it to him because that's just how photography works. And so he got them home and developed them. So it's this strange collaboration. We talked a few weeks ago about collaborations. This is one that we didn't really even think of. Between complete strangers, happenstance, and Mark's developing skills. And I guess luck, because these are really old. The cameras that he found and that were used to shoot these photos was the Brownie Reflex, the Brownie Star Flash, a Nikon One Touch, a Ricoh 35S, some disposable cameras, and some just some random pre-exposed film. It runs the gamut. This is like the photography history of roll film right here. Mm -hmm. The zine is, the only downside is it's really short. And I love big zines, I guess. And I, but I do love zines that leave me wanting more. And this one does. The front cover is just a lovely older lady in her Sunday best. But the back cover is a place that I, I recognize. I looked at it and go, oh, that's Fort Simcoe on the Ekma Reservation in central Washington. It's, it was neat feeling that time. But then I remembered that, Oh, Mark is from Washington and he's 
probably going to flea markets in Washington, buying things that were dropped off there by people from Washington. So it all makes sense, but still. Uh, you can pick this zine up for $6. We'll have the link in the show notes. Give Mark a follow at markj913 on Instagram. All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspapers.com account for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head on over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. Hey, Vanya. Yes. Well, we're kind of wrapping up the show now. We are almost done. So what does the next week look like for you, in film photographically speaking? Mm, yeah, good question. I'm um, waiting for the three-piece morning attire, obviously. Essential uh, Halloween. Yes, Halloween is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to convince Marley to bring over her friends so I can get some orthochromatic portraits of, of them in my makeshift living room studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just kind of that, really. I really wanted to try to get some cool portraits is it you know should i dress up like a witch like come into my house children let me take your picture it really doesn't sound creepy at all when you put it that way yeah that's what i thought how about you well i think i need a little bit of a break uh just a little bit yeah i finally broke them you guys i'm sorry it's true so this weekend hopefully and maybe next hopefully i'm staying home I'm going to be watching some Godzilla movies. There is a Godzilla Fest that's streaming, but I do think it's all in Japanese. Uh, I've been meaning to watch Godzilla versus Hedra again, and I'm hoping to. I've been hoping to do that for quite a while now. I've listened to the new Duran Duran record, but I want to listen to it a little bit more, and I kind of want to sit with it, try to make myself like it a bit more. Try to force try to force yourself to like it. Yeah, but also Zeno and Oaklander have a new album out, and... While that can get a bit sleepy, the second song on it is pretty sweet. I have a lot to develop too, so I'll be developing and probably laying out a zine. And I'll probably shoot a little bit. And like I said, I have that gallery show that I'm going to coming up. So basically not a break. Not a break. (laughs) No, not a break. But coming up on the next dev party, we will be developing stuff with X, well, not X Tall, but Fomadon. Fomadon. Speaking of kaiju, Fomadon. Foma's answer to X Tall. I guess they're the same thing, but this is a liter rather than what X Tall makes you make like five gallons of the shit or something. Five, I think it's five liters, but it's a lot. X Tall. It's a gallon. X Tall is a lot. It is. I used it a lot. Yeah. So I liked it. Yeah. Well, but Fomadon, I've never tried. I haven't either. And so I'm very excited. I used to use Xtal and I did like some of the results, but uh, we're going to try Fomadon on, I don't know, probably Foma 100. Maybe I'll, I'll switch over to that then. Who the hell knows? Anything else to say there, Vanya? Yes. 
Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Dang, we're everywhere. <laughs> Almost. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographer. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I'm wherever the hell else you found your podcast. You're, you found this one, so there. It's there. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you next week at Dev Party. Um, Vanya? Yes? Do you uh, want to go downtown and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! But I thought you were taking a break. When you've got worries, all the noise in the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music.